0: Hi. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, If we've never met, my name is Jay, and I'm part of the team here, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Westgate. Welcome to the 1115. Everybody uh, in the tent and watching online, so glad you all are here as well. Um, If you haven't been around for the last couple of months, that's okay. We're super thrilled you're here today uh, just to get you caught up. For seriously, like the last few months, I think two and a half months, we've been in a series called Abraham, A Field Guide to Loving God. And as the title implies, we've been uh, deep diving into the life of this character, this man we find in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, named Abraham. And we've been exploring various stories and um, situations and circumstances from his life, uh, not because, like we primarily want to know more about Abraham per se, but because we believe that abraham's life actually paints a very beautiful, robust, and practical picture of a life that um, is is directing love toward god and and the reason this is important for us, At Westgate, again, if you've been around for any length of time, you probably know this. One of our values here at Westgate Church is to become a people who love God deeply together. And um, to do that, we have to get over the challenge of the fact that culturally, the idea of love is like pretty ambiguous. So when you hear the phrase, love God, or like love anyone or anything, it's really malleable, culturally speaking, like it can mean kind of whatever you want it to mean. And so this series has been our attempt To uh, consider the life of Abraham and ask the question, how does his life teach us and equip us to live a life of love toward God in real ways? Not just kind of like the butterflies in the stomach or having good feelings about God, but actually love God with all that we are. And so this has been, again, like a two and a half month journey. If you missed any of the teachings, they're all on our website. You can go there or or on our YouTube page. you can get caught up if you want to, but today uh, we're we're nearing the end. Actually, next Sunday will be our final teaching in this series, and Steve will sort of close us out next next week. But as we near the end today, we arrive at a story in Abraham's life that is, in my opinion, and in the opinions of many, if not most people, it is the most disturbing story in the entire Abraham story. And one could make the argument that this is one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible. Um, I want to show you a a painting here by the Italian artist Caravaggio. And uh, this is a painting called The Sacrifice of Isaac. And this painting is a visual depiction of the story we are going to jump into today that we find in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham is asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac, on an altar. Again, we'll read parts of the story here in a moment, but just on the surface, listen, let's be honest. This story on the surface is horrific. Let me read the story to you. Genesis 22, just the beginning, says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Okay, let's just stop there for a moment. We just spent like 15, 20 minutes singing these beautiful songs to God. I watched you and I heard you in the room, many of you, not all of you, but many of you, just in full, like whole-bodied devotion of love toward God through music. But then that God that we were all just singing to, the God we believe loves us so much and cares for us so much, this is in the Bible, you guys. That same God says to a man named Abraham, listen, go to Moriah, climb up a mountain I'm gonna show you, and kill your son on an altar. Like, is this what God is like? Is this the God you and I just sang to? Is this what he's like? The truth is, um, beneath the surface of this on-the-surface horrific story, there is incredible beauty. But in order for us to get there, we have to begin by reckoning with the reality of how the story plays out on the surface. And we have to admit that on the surface, this story is frightening. I mean, honestly, just on the surface, it's like, it makes you ask all sorts of questions. Like, what's happening here? Is this what God is like? Is God going to ask me to make this sort of sacrifice? And if he is, is that the sort of God I want to devote my life and allegiance to? I thought God was love. This seems dramatically unloving. A few thoughts. First, Child sacrifice, religious child sacrifice in the ancient Near East world was common. Now I don't say that to you to justify God's question here. In fact, what I am going to show you in a few moments is that there is something happening beneath the surface of this question uh, that illuminates the entire story. But first, we have to begin with the reality that child sacrifice as religious ritual in the ancient world, and in particular, where Abraham lived, the place and time in which Abraham's story unfolded, it was common. If you remember back, if you were here, and you remember back to like two months ago when we started this series, uh, we talked about the fact that Abraham was born in an ancient city called Ur. And actually, um, archaeologists have found in the last 50 years or so, archaeologists have found evidence, uh, significant evidence of child sacrifice in the ancient city of Ur, in and around the time of Abraham. Not only in the city of Ur, where Abraham was born, but also in surrounding regions. And so archaeologists and historians and scholars all seem to agree First, that child sacrifice was at minimum a small but consistent part of religious ritual in the ancient world at the time of Abraham. And most scholars and archaeologists believe, due to archaeological evidence, that child sacrifice was probably more than just a small but consistent part, and rather a very common and regular part of religious ritual at the time of Abraham. Now, none of this helps, but it is important. It's important because we have to recognize that God is speaking to a man named Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his own son at a time when that was a normative thing for the gods to do. At the time of Abraham, the gods, the pagan gods, would regularly ask people to sacrifice their own children to appease the gods or to win the gods' favor, et cetera, et cetera. And so when God goes to Abraham, the one true God goes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, go to Moriah, climb the mountain I will show you and sacrifice your son there to me. This would not have been abnormal, culturally speaking. This is how the gods behaved in the ancient world. But what you were going to see is that this story is not about God supporting the sin of child sacrifice, but it is actually, in fact, God's way of standing in opposition to the sin of child sacrifice. To sort of illustrate for you how that is happening, um, I'll, I'll just use an example. Does anybody know the British graffiti artist Banksy? Anybody know Banksy? Okay, so Banksy, if you don't know, is like this world-renowned, he might be the most famous artist in the world today, um, he's like, uh, he's anonymous, nobody actually knows who Banksy is, no one's ever seen his face, um, but he's a British graffiti artist, and he travels the world, and he puts up graffiti art like all over the world, and then he's just, like out of there, nobody knows who he is. I want to show you one of his more famous pieces. Some of you have probably seen this before. This is a piece by Banksy called Flower Thrower. How many of you have seen Flower Thrower before? If you're interested in Banksy, by the way, he has an exhibit coming to San Francisco, I think this month. Um, So if you want to go, it's like fascinating stuff. Anyways... Flower Thrower. I don't know how well you can see it here on the screen, but Flower Thrower is a stencil. It's a stencil piece. It's really large, actually, originally, and Banksy depicts an anarchist with rage on his face, like real anger on his face. In fact, the subtitle for Flower Thrower is Rage. That's the other title for this piece. So there is rage on this anarchist's face, and he's got his arm cocked back, like ready and loaded to throw what you would expect to be like a firebomb, right? The weapon of choice for anarchists. To like throw a firebomb and cause an explosion, lead a riot, revolution, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But the piece is called Flower Thrower because this anarchist, he's got his arm ready to go, cocked and loaded, and he's going like, to throw his weapon. But instead of a firebomb, it's a bouquet of flowers in his hand. You see that? Right? He's got a bouquet of flowers in his hand. And this is Banksy's way, and he does this all the time with his art. This is Banksy's way of critiquing the norm. It's his way of subverting what you expect in a scene like that. Banksy never really explains his pieces, but he does this emphatically all the time. It's his way of essentially asking you, the audience, the question, what if instead of hurling hur- violence toward each other, what if you threw flowers instead? Like what would it look like if instead of a firebomb, it was a bouquet of flowers? Instead of hatred, it was love. Instead of vitriol, it was Kindness. This is subversive art. This is what subversive art does. It's what Banksy does. And I would suggest to you, Genesis 22 is subversive art. God enters the normative scenes of the day where the gods ask people to sacrifice their children. But he enters that scene not to like, support that sort of action, but to actually oppose it in a very creative and unique and profound way. Genesis 22 is a subversive art. Through the narrative, God is actually critiquing the cultural norms of the day. When people regularly sacrifice children to um, appease and win the favor of the gods. And God is highlighting his opposition, not his approval of the sin of child sacrifice. I'll show you that very clearly here in a moment. But first, you have to know that this story also is not really about child sacrifice. In the context of Abraham's life, and in the context of the biblical story of Abraham, this story is not really about child sacrifice. That child sacrifice element is what grabs our attention, because it's so jarring, it's so shocking. But if you look at the entire story of Abraham, what you realize is that Genesis 22 is simply a continuation of a journey that Abraham has been on since Genesis 12. Remember, the story of Abraham in the Bible begins at Genesis 12. We're introduced to this character Abraham in Genesis 12. And how we are introduced to him is like this. Genesis 12, verse 1. God says to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. So when we meet Abraham in the Bible, the first words God speaks to this man Abraham is, "Are go from your country, from your people and your father's household to the land I will show you." And then when we get to the really shocking, jarring story of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, what do you find? God says to Abraham, "Take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Do you see the parallels? Let me just visually show you the parallels. At the beginning of Abraham's story, God says in Genesis 12, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, to the mountain I will show you. This is a continuation of the story of faith that Abraham has been on since the beginning of his story in the Bible. And what we discover here is um, something that I think many of us can relate to. In Genesis 12, God asks Abraham to leave his country and his father's household and his people to go in faith to the land God will show him. And in Genesis 22, now, instead of leaving, what does God say? He says, take your son, your one and only son whom you love, and then sacrifice him on the mountain I will show you. The common thread between the two is the land he will show you and the mountain he will show you. The common thread is faith. God is asking Abraham to take a step of faith. God does not say, go to this specific land, here are the GPS coordinates. He does not say, go up this specific mountain, here is the, the exact map on how you get up the trail. No, God says, go to the land I will show you, go to the mountain I will show you. Have that thought reverberating in your mind, it'll really matter at the end. The mountain I will show you. What we see is that Genesis 22 is a continuation of the entire Abraham story, which begins in Genesis 12. And what we learn from this is that often, and this is what I think many of us will be able to relate to, often faith begins as a leaving behind. Leave your father's household. Leave the land. Leave your people and go to the place I will show you. That's often how our faith journeys begin. You encounter Christ for the first time and you leave behind your old life. You leave behind the brokenness and the sin and you experience the exhilaration, the adventure of this new life in Christ. Yes? You can relate, right? Many of you. Not all of you. Many of you. But often, and this is where it gets really treacherous and demands our our deepest faith, Often, as you begin your faith journey by leaving behind and embarking on this adventure into the unknown with God, as you trek along, God will inevitably, eventually ask you not simply to leave something behind, but what? To lay something down. Take your son, your only son whom you love, and lay him down. Faith begins with a leaving behind, but often it leads to a laying down. Now, here's where it gets really tricky. What I do not mean is that God will ask you to lay down something simply to hurt you or to break you. That's what it seems like on the surface here. When God says to Abraham, lay down your son, your only son, whom you love, I mean, that just seems evil, does it not? But that's not what's happening here. God is not asking Abraham to lay down Isaac because he wants to hurt Abraham. He's not asking Abraham to lay down Isaac because he knows Isaac's the person he cherishes and loves the most, and he just wants to strip Abraham of that which he cherishes and loves the most. That's not the heart of God. We'll see that here in a moment. But first, this is a critically important truth. The life of faith begins with a leaving behind, but be ready if you have not experienced it already. You will inevitably and eventually be asked to lay something down. Now, this story is also about what scholars call prophetic reenactment. Prophetic reenactment. That phrase, we can take that slide off for a moment. Um, That phrase, prophetic reenactment, is actually a, a phrase that scholars use to describe these strange, not common, it's not common, but these strange obscure stories throughout the Bible where God asks these specific people to do very strange things to physically embody God's heart. Let me explain. Let me explain. Um, how How many of you have heard the name Hosea? Anybody know that name, Hosea? He's this sort of obscure Old Testament prophet. If you know Hosea's story, you know that in the story, God asks this prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute named Gomer. I mean, why would God do such a thing? But God asks Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer, and the reason is because he wants Hosea to physically embody God's heartbreak at the infidelity of his people who refuse to be faithful to him. And so Hosea, in an act of prophetic reenactment, physically embodies the heartbreak of God by marrying a a, a prostitute who has no fidelity to him. Is completely unfaithful. This is prophetic reenactment. There's another even more obscure story about the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel at one point in his life, is in, um, God instructs him to lay on his side for 390 days. I mean, can you imagine? Lay on his side for 390 days. And the reason God asks him to do this is because he wants uh, Ezekiel to physically embody the pain of what is called exile, the fact that God's people, because of their sin and unfaithfulness, are now going to be exiled away from their homeland, displaced and dispersed throughout the world. And so there are stories like this over and over, not, they're not common, but they do happen every now and then, where God invites specific people to do very strange things in order to physically embody, in an act of prophetic reenactment, God's heart, the way God feels about a particular situation or about a particular people. And many scholars, in fact, most scholars agree that Genesis 22 is an example, actually the first example, of prophetic reenactment. That God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on an altar to reenact and to physically embody God's own heart for his people. And what we're going to see here. Is that God reveals his own heart and he subverts the culture of child sacrifice. He critiques it and opposes it in a profoundly beautiful way. Let me show you. As you've seen with Genesis 12 and Genesis 22, we say this a lot here, but the Bible is like one overarching story. Even if you're not a Christian, and if you're not a Christian and you're here, we're thrilled you're here. And here's what I would say even if you think all this God Jesus stuff is nonsense, you cannot deny that the Bible is like literary genius. Because let me show you. When I say that Genesis 22 is a way of God um, asking Abraham to prophetically reenact his heart for his people, When I say that God's invitation for Abraham to sacrifice his son is a way in which God is asking Abraham to physically embody the heart of God toward his people, this is what I mean. The Abraham story, the Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac story, Genesis chapter 22, is actually a physical embodying, a prophetic reenactment of what God will eventually do for us. That's what's happening in the story. God's not actually asking Abraham to kill his own son. That's not the sort of God he is. God opposes that sort of vile, evil action. And he's going to show that here in a moment. He takes Abraham through this incredibly difficult story because Abraham is prophetically reenacting, physically embodying how desperately God longs to have a relationship with us. And he is prophetically reenacting, pointing to the future, foreshadowing the the thing that God himself will do. Let me show you. First, the Genesis 22 story is about a beloved son. Genesis 22, then God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. What does this sound like? It sounds like Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus, God's son, enters the scene and he's about to be baptized and at his baptism, the heavens rip open and we hear the voice of God the Father say what words? This is my son whom I love. And this beloved son eventually carries the wood upon which he will die. Genesis 22, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. What does this sound like? It sounds like John 19, when Jesus is carrying his cross, the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull where he would die. And so this beloved son, carries the wood upon which he will die, and as he does, there is doubt. Genesis 22. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac is a smart young man, He understands what is about to happen. They have everything they need to offer a sacrifice to God, but he looks around and he realizes there's no animal to sacrifice. I mean, what do you think is happening in the psychology of this young man? He's a smart kid. He gets it. He knows something is off. What do we see in Jesus? The night of his arrest, he goes to a garden called Gethsemane. It says, going a little further, he, Jesus, fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Doubt abounds. He knows what must be done, but in reality, he doesn't want to do it. He has questions. Is there another way? And so In Genesis 22 and in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac and in the story of Jesus himself, we have a beloved son who carries the wood upon which he will will die and doubt abounds. But then, ultimately, God himself provides the sacrifice. And you guys, this is like so profoundly beautiful to me. Genesis 22, it's like these two verses were written like, thousands of years apart, and it's like they flow right into each other. Listen to this. Genesis 22, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went together. And John chapter one, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Genesis 22 story sounds like a horrific story enacted by a horrific God who wants to punish an innocent man named Abraham by asking him to kill his son. When in fact, the story is an act of subversive art. It's a way in which God opposes such evil in the world and declares to the world, I am not that sort of God. I do not ask for your best so that you might have heartbreak and heartache forever, immeasurably so. What God says is yes, There must be a sacrifice to make a way between a perfect God and sinful people like you and me. But that sacrifice will not be made by you or anyone you love. The only time I will actually ask for the death of a son and go through with that death is when I give my own son to make a way. That's what's happening in the story. Abraham as he physically embodies and prophetically reenacts the heart of God, he does this because he understands that loving God means more than just receiving the gifts of God, it means trusting enough him enough, trusting that God is good enough to lay down those gifts when he asks. In Hebrews 11 It says that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He, Abraham, who had embraced the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Loving God means receiving or embracing the love of God and then being willing to trust in God's goodness enough to sacrifice or give that love back, no matter how little sense it makes. Loving God means not only getting the love of God, it means trusting in his goodness enough to give it back to him anytime he asks. Knowing that he is not asking you to lay things down to punish you or to hurt you or to harm you. That no matter how little sense it makes, if God is asking you to lay anything down, it is because he has something infinitely more good and beautiful and true for you. Loving God means believing that, yes, you have to relinquish some things because it is hard to receive the goodness of God if your hands are clenched. You have to open them and live open-handed to receive all God has for you. How does the story end? Genesis 22, verses 12 to 14 Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket saw a ram caught by its horns. Then he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Remember earlier, I asked you to remember that little line where God says, go to the mountain, I will show you. Why does God say that? Because on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided for you. So whatever mountain God is asking you to climb. Like no matter how uncertain or unsure, maybe you look up that mountain and it is so tall and it is so steep, you cannot see its peak. It's covered by dark, ominous clouds of uncertainty and fear and anxiety. But if God is telling you to go up that mountain, here's what I can promise you. If you would be willing to go beyond the clouds, there is God's provision. There is the sun breaking through the darkness. I showed you that painting earlier, The Sacrifice of Isaac, by the Italian painter Caravaggio. I want to show it to you again. You'll notice that there are, it's a dark painting, not just emotionally, but like actual literally, the colors are dark. And you'll notice that very specific parts of the painting are illuminated. This is very intentional by the artist. You'll notice that the angel that stops Abraham from slaying his son is very brightly lit. You'll notice that Abraham's face is also brightly lit in the presence of this angel and therefore of God. You'll notice that Isaac, though fear on his face, he too is brightly lit. And then you'll also see uh, dimly lit in the corner there is the ram that God provides. Now that's where our eyes go. But if you think about it, the brightest part of the painting is where? it's the upper right-hand corner. Here's what's really interesting. Art historians, as they've studied this painting, what they've realized is that it's hard for you to see, but um, Caravaggio, he painted a small building off in the distance. Now remember, this is a story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, which happened thousands and thousands of years ago. But the painting of the building in the upper right-hand corner is actually an early 17th century paint, uh, building, which is when Caravaggio painted this painting. So he paints an ancient story, but in the backdrop, he puts a modern structure. And art historians believe this building is supposed to represent for Caravaggio, the church. And the only place in the painting where you see illumination, not just like on the faces of characters, but actual like a brightly lit sky, is that upper right-hand corner beneath the church. And what art historians believe is that this is Caravaggio's way of saying that in the Genesis 22 story, the way God provides the ram in the thickets... For Abraham, in place of his son Isaac, is the way God will eventually provide Jesus to break light into the darkness. That the ancient story of Genesis 22 gives us hope for the present and the future. That the gift the church has received is the fact that we live under the brightly lit, sunlit skies of God's grace. That no matter how dark and how difficult, how anxiety-inducing and uncertain your current situation and story may be, If you would look back into the past and see God's faithfulness, not just to Abraham, but to all of us through the death and resurrection of his son, then you would also be able to see into the future, the day when that very son who was killed on a cross and resurrected will someday return to rule and reign as king over all things and make all wrong things right. There are bright days ahead for us, no matter how dark your life seems now. That's the story. And the part we are to play is to trust the goodness of God enough to, in this moment, lay down whatever it is he is asking us to lay down. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, um, we love you in a way that words can't quite describe because of your immense sacrifice that changed everything for us. We love you for being the great sacrifice, for being the son that is actually laid down so that we might have life. And we pray that you would give us enough courage, enough faith, God, that you would give us enough trust today in your goodness and in your love to be willing to lay down whatever it is you are asking us to lay down. Opening our hands, believing that in your goodness, no matter how hard it is to lay down whatever it is we lay down, that you will um, give to us that which we need in ways that we may not even understand today. Give us that sort of courage, that confidence, that faith, and that trust in your goodness. we love you in Jesus name. Amen. Um, my wife and I are part of a life group here at Westgate, and our life group is uh, it's all young families, you know, young married couples with little kids. And so our wives get together one week, and then our husbands another week, and we go back and forth. And this past week was the husbands. So I was with these other guys who are quickly becoming such dear, dear friends of mine. And these guys are all like high achiever, Silicon Valley, they've done very well for themselves. That whole thing, like smart. I'm like the dumbest guy in the room. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. And it's like put together, they've got, you know, they've got a plan and they're executing their plan for life and they're awesome. But every time we get together, we go around and we share prayer requests. And you know, the most interesting hap- thing happens when we share prayer requests. I realize in that moment, none of us know what we're doing. (laughs) And we are all in some ways fearful and uncertain. And I, I bet you can relate. We all have stuff we carry with us and we do our best with all of our skill and our knowledge and our resources to try to craft a life that we think is worth living. And then at the end of the day, when we're really honest with ourselves or really honest with the people that we truly let into our lives, we realize there is no amount of skill or resources or knowledge or whatever to craft the sort of life we want to craft, the sort of life that's full of meaning and purpose and destiny and joy that every human being longs for. And you find yourself at an altar. It's like you have a choice. You can either, you can either hold on to that anxiety and that uncertainty and that frustration, or you can just lay it down. You can lay it down because you trust that God is good that he knows better than you. So as we sing these next couple of songs, you'll notice here at the front of the room, there's an altar. And this altar is um, it's designed with the aesthetic of this series, Abraham, a field guide to loving God. And there are some pens up here. And as we sing these songs... As a response to this prayer, this prayer that I'm going to show you up on the screen, I want to invite you, as you feel led during these next couple of songs, to come at any point and to jot down any word or phrase that represents something that you want to lay down before God, that you want to entrust into his care. Here's the prayer. God, I have a hard time trusting you with what? I have a hard time trusting you with this relationship or this deep inner sort of demon I'm wrestling with, or this um, anxiety or fear or uncertainty, or this situation or whatever. I have a hard time trusting you with what? But I know you're good. So I surrender this into your loving care. I don't know the way forward, but I believe you do, and I trust you. And so in our own sort of way, as a, as a way of um, prophetically reenacting the goodness of God, as a way of physically embodying that prayer. If you feel led, you don't have to write in great detail. Obviously, this is a public, you know, uh, sort of art piece. You can just write a phrase or a word that, that represents to you whatever it is God might be asking you to lay down, of opening your hands, giving it to the Lord so that you might receive his goodness into your life. So Mark and the team are going to lead us. We're going to sing. And as you feel led, come forward. And you can just write that down here um, on this beautiful piece at the altar. Let's all stand and sing together.